Well, it's a pleasure to introduce uh, our next speaker for today, for this evening. Megan McArdle is a journalist based here in Washington, D.C. She covers economics and finance for Bloomberg View. Her writing has appeared in The Economist, The Atlantic, Newsweek, The Daily Beast, Salon, Reason, and The Guardian. And she's the author of a new book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. Megan McArdle. Yes, apologize for stealing uh, one of the lavaliers, but uh, I'm, I'm a pacer, so. Um, I'm afraid I'm not going to give a happy talk tonight. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, could we turn? I think we have both mics on, which is giving kind of feedback. Am I wrong about that, or is this just my mic? OK. Uh, it sounds very loud up here. <laughs> um, I'm not giving a happy talk tonight. You know, I, I would like to come give you the jolly talk about how great liberty is. Um, liberty is great. We should have more of it. Uh, unfortunately, when I look around, that's not really what I'm seeing. Uh, it's made me a little depressed, so I'm afraid you're getting the special blues edition of Megan McArdle, public speaker, this evening. Um, but do stand by for the end, because that's when my dog gets resurrected, my spouse comes back, and my, the boss man gives me back my job. Uh, or the political talk equivalent, because I actually have a great job and a great dog, and uh, my spouse and dog are both in excellent health. But I'm sure you've heard a lot this week about all the great things that are happening to increase freedom around the world, and a lot of great things are happening. Technology is increasing human potential every day. We have things like the gig economy, which are giving people more ways to do things by themselves, for themselves. Uh, great institutions like Cato are studying ways to increase freedom and communicating them with more reach and effectiveness than ever before. But I write about US politics and policy. And a libertarian watching US politics and policy right now has to feel a little bit, as Tom Lehrer once said, like a Christian scientist with appendicitis. <laughs> <laughs> we face a choice between a Republican Party that is promising to tear up our trade deals, build a wall, and even revive Glass-Steagall, a New Deal-era banking regulation that was so bad that it was actually repealed under Bill Clinton. Um, meanwhile, the Democratic Party nominee wants to report Supreme Court justices who will overturn Citizens United so that nonprofits can't talk about her in the run-up to an election. She wants to massively increase subsidies for practically everything that happens between birth and death. And oh, she also wants to backtrack on trade, just in case the Republicans weren't doing enough of that. Decades of progress in civil liberties and economic liberties are under real and dire threat of being rolled back in a way that they've not been for a long time. And when I look out beyond our shores, I look out to other countries, I look what's happening, what's happening in Venezuela. I believe we have at least one person from Venezuela here uh, tonight looking at what's happening in China, looking at what's happening in Russia, looking at what's happening around the world, I don't see the promise that I thought I saw 10 or 20 years ago for just ever increasing liberty. Um, so I'm going to talk tonight about how we deal with that, how those of us who have committed uh, large portions of our lives, I hope, to freedom and increasing liberty for everyone, um, what do we do? And, and, and I'm going to talk actually about what we need to change. Um, and I'm doing that even though it's uncomfortable and it's not as fun a talk as talking about how other people ought to change. Um, because that's like fundamentally disempowering, right? We can all sit around and talk about how other people need to do things differently. And as uh, if, uh, those of you who are familiar with Aesop's table, that's all very well, but who's gonna bell the cat? 
So let's talk about what we can do differently and some things that I think that, that certainly I and a lot of other people, professional advocates for these kinds of things, have not done well enough during the period that we've just lived through where liberty did really increase, freedom did really increase. What did we miss? We're not in a unique moment by any means, but we're probably in the most liberty-phobic moment of the lifetimes of, of all of the younger people I see here. It's really distressing to me, by the way, that I'm now talking about the younger people instead of being <laughs> one of them. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm actually, I'm gonna start my talk by talking a little bit about what it was like in the olden days. Um, I like to think that I'm in touch with the kids these days. Uh, I have Snapchat installed on my phone. Uh, I don't know how to use it, but I did install it. Um, Anyway, if there's one thing I know about young people, it's how much you guys love having older people tell you what things used to be like in their day. So, um, back when men were real men, women were real women, and you couldn't even change the channel on your television set without getting up and walking all the way across the room. Um, actually, we had a remote control in our house. My father would say, Megan, could you please get up and change the channel? Uh, there's actually, like, I think, an underexplored link between falling native birth rates in the United States and the invention of the remote control. Because uh, in my household, that was a major function of having children. Um, anyway, I'm going to go back to the olden days. I grew up in the shadow of communism in a way that I think that is hard to understand for a lot of the young faces that I see out in the audience tonight. Um, I lived in New York City, and I knew pretty much to a certainty that if there was a nuclear war, I would die. And that was something that I knew when I was a little kid. Um, and that fear was much more pervasive for kids of my generation than anything that your generation had. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying like everything was terrible and now you guys have all awesome because you don't have to walk uphill to school barefoot both ways with red Indians hiding behind every tree. Um, terrorism is bad, many you've faced challenges that I didn't have. But we weren't afraid that we might die, be one of a few people who died in a terrorist attack. We were actually afraid that everyone would die. And that was just a feature of childhood in the 1980s. Um, my school was a designated fallout shelter, my primary school. It had a yellow sign on it that told you you could go here. I remember actually, uh, I had a fifth grade teacher, maybe fourth grade teacher. Someone, one of my teachers when I was uh, you know, eight or nine told me <laughs> that if there was a nuclear attack, I should tuck my pants into my socks <laughs> to protect from fallout. <laughs> I still to this day have no idea what that was supposed to be. It's like, oh, yes, Ms. McArdle, I'm sorry she's dead, but look at those ankles. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we were afraid, but that fear was also in a way, it was clarifying, right? We were in an existential threat against a regime that opposed every important freedom all at once. The Soviet Union had no free speech. It oppressed religious liberty. It denied economic freedoms, obviously. That's sort of what communism is, is that there isn't economic freedom, at least not freedom to. Um, and because those oppressions were hard to bear, it also had to limit freedom of movement, right? Um, this was a regime that in order to keep its other oppressions in place, had to make sure no one could leave because then they wouldn't, otherwise they wouldn't stay. So today we're accustomed to talking about freedom of movement and we were talking about people being able to move to a place that maybe doesn't want them or where a lot of citizens don't want them. This was a place so bad that you weren't allowed to leave it at all, even if someone else was willing to take you. And then when I was 16, something amazing happened. The Soviet Union just dissolved itself. Freedom won. Um, you know, the wall came down, Germany was reunited, Eastern Bloc nations were uh, liberated from the Soviet Empire, and it was an extraordinary moment. And my whole youth 
was pretty much spent in the afterglow of that moment. In college, I became a libertarian, although I didn't actually realize it at first. <laughs> so I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, where I actually knew more people who had gone to communist day camp than I knew Republicans. Um, so actually, I didn't, as far as I know, knew, knew, know any Republicans. It turned out my grandparents were Republicans. I didn't know this growing up. And my mother, I told my mother this, and she said, we didn't hide it from you. And I'm not actually sure that's true. Um, so if you were like me, through this long period of feeling kind of strange, not like the other people around you. And then one day you, you realized there were other people like you and you weren't so alone. Um, and I'm gonna allow myself one and only one, you kids don't know how good you have it, moment for the, 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 the young people in the audience, which is that I didn't, when I was your age, I didn't even know about Cato. I had to, I had to like, become a libertarian all by myself <laughs> in secret. I didn't know how many other people there were who thought like me and how much they were doing to advance those ideas in the world. So seriously, you kids do not yet know how good you have it. Um, <laughs> nonetheless, it was a great moment to become a libertarian because the afterglow of 1989 gave people like me a lot of confidence in what we believed. The implosion of communism proved that markets work. State control doesn't. Immigration restrictions were being dropped. Trade was being freed. We had massive trade rounds in the 90s. We had massive liberalization of all sorts of economies, not just in the Eastern Bloc. We had Latin America was looking up. We had uh, China, obviously, was massively freeing its markets. Um, even the Democratic president proclaimed that the era of big government was over. So all over the world, academics and institutions and government are all looking for more democracy, more freedom, more markets instead of state control. And I went through my 20s kind of genuinely convinced that it's somewhat the way that like communists did in 1920, was that the revolution was now started and all we had to do was wait for it to finish arriving. Um, and that now seems sort of absurd. So the 90s ended when terror, two terrorists flew, uh, when terrorists flew two planes into the World Trade Center and the, um, the zeros? We don't actually still know what to call them, do we? Uh, I'm, I'm gonna nominate the naughty oddies. Uh, so, the naughty oddies ended when Lehman went bankrupt, and markets turned out to sometimes make horrific mistakes. And those two respective ends seem to have ended popular support for a smaller military, the freer economy, the easing off on security, and all sorts of other liberty restrictions that I had just thought was eventually going to arrive in due course. In August of 1914, when the earth trembled on the brink of its first world war, Sir Edward Grey, Britain's foreign Secretary is said to have remarked, the lamps are going out all across Europe. They will not be lit again in our generation. And in many ways, he was right. World War I ended a period of massive expansions in trade and migration and liberty and democracy and all sorts of things happening all over. That all ended with World War I, and then we got communism and fascism and millions of people dead. I think that for a libertarian, the moment we're in now has to feel a little bit like that. All over the world, we're seeing a rise of nationalist and populist movements that are suspicious of both foreigners and of markets. And those two things are linked in a way that people don't always necessarily understand. At home, we have such a movement in Donald Trump and an opponent who, well, more open to migration, is even less open to markets and who promises to appoint Supreme Court justices who will rubber stamp significant intrusions into freedom of speech, freedom of association, religious liberty, and economic liberty. We're also seeing an apparent uptick in both crime and in global terrorism, which, and if that continues, the government response to those, we know what that looks like, and it is not good for liberty. So the question I'll pose tonight is simply this, 
what do we do now? I mean, other than going to the basement with some canned goods and ammunition, <laughs> maybe some Jim Beam to kill the pain, um, <laughs> that we're better than that. Uh, that is why we are all here, isn't it? Like, you want to fight for liberty, and that gives me hope. But I want to suggest that in a time like this, when liberty seems under assault from all sides, that what it needs is fewer warriors and more ambassadors. Because we're not fighting a big evil empire that can just be taken down. We're fighting our fellow citizens who think that, in the words of President Obama in 2008, they gave us the keys and we crashed the car. I think they're wrong in a lot of ways, but I think that we have to make that case affirmatively. It is not enough to say, but dad. Um, look, I know everyone in this room, as I say that, is kind of mentally formulating a lot of arguments about why they're wrong. I've, I've made many of those arguments. I, I get it. I'm, um, here's the thing. I'm now, I'm in the trenches with readers who aren't all libertarian. And I've got to tell you, those bullets are firing, falling short right now. And it is not enough to just say, we've got to get the machine gun bandolier so we can fire a lot more of them. We need a different stock of ammunition because this is not working. So if we want to be more effective advocates for liberty, we need to start asking, why do people feel this way? Why is everyone so sour on market liberalism? Now, there are two ways of asking that question. And one is to say, like, why is everyone being so stupid? Um, <laughs> Uh, and I know that the, the younger folks in this room have been probably told by their teachers there's no such thing as a stupid question, and I'm sorry, that's a stupid question. Right? A smart question is a question that makes you smarter by asking it, even if you don't get the answer. The process of getting, trying to get that answer makes you start smarter. A stupid question is a question that makes you stupider. And think about what you're asking me, that why does everyone else suck and why am I so good? So you go out and you try to find the answer, and at the end, even if you come up with the answer that like I am amazing, I guarantee that all the other people who we need to persuade do not buy that answer. <laughs> and so you're not gonna have a lot of sales success. I know we've got at least one sales, uh, sales consultant in the audience. You're not gonna have a lot of success with that. So I'm always fascinated by the number of people. I'm sure you must have seen this, right? You see columns, you see tweets, you see Facebook posts, you see all of these social media. Um, I don't understand how anyone could oppose legal, legal abortion or support a carbon tax or dislike migration or not want to let the refugees, whatever it is. And it's a really interesting statement because it has three layers of meaning, right? The first layer is like the literal meaning of the words, which is that I do not have the information that I need to know why they think this, right? But that's not actually why anyone ever writes that. What they're actually trying to say is the second layer of meaning, which is, I am such an amazing, morally superior person that I am unable to grasp the depths of moral turpitude or sheer idiocy that would lead someone to that conclusion. <laughs> but there's a third layer, and that is the actual true meaning of that, which is closer to the first. I lack the imagination, analytical skills, or empathy to attempt even a basic understanding of people who agree with me. We are all, and I, like, I'm not, not we libertarians, we human beings are all way too fond of that sort of investigation. This is the moment at which we absolutely must guard against this. Because if we don't, we are gonna be powerless in the face of some very powerful forces. Okay, so that's stupid. So what's a smart way to ask that question? And it's to ask, what are these people thinking or seeing that I am not? So 
the temptation is to say they're self-interested or they're self-righteous or they're deluded or they're racist or they're tribalist or they're some other thing that says they're bad people. Um, that's not really useful. People are, to varying degrees, self-righteous, deluded, self-interested, racist, tribalist, and all the rest of it. You are, I am, these are fundamentals of the human condition. So it's not a useful explanation. Or if it is a useful explanation, then libertarian doesn't, libertarianism doesn't work and we should give up because we're not gonna engineer those things out of the human race in the next two years. Um, I don't think that, uh, that it's that dire, however. But we have to remember, these are fellow human beings who are very much like us in many ways. They want the same sorts of things they have the same kind of hopes and dreams and angers and loves and hates that we do. So how are they seeing the same information and getting such different answers from us? Um, one way I'd suggest is that they have different experiences. So libertarians as a group are kind of weird people. I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm, I'm normal, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're a strange group. We, are, we tend to be affluent. Uh, we tend to be white. These are, general, these are generalizations. We tend to be male, again, obviously. I'm not personally. Um, <laughs> as a group, we tend to be highly educated. We tend to be highly open to experience. We tend to be highly mobile. Um, we forget that these things are actually strange. We tend to be what Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, calls weird. Western, educated, uh, industrial, rich. Um, that's actually weird. Most people in the world are not like this. Most people in America aren't necessarily entirely like this. Um, I happen to think we're right about a whole bunch of stuff, but we always have to remember that we don't know what it's like to be people who are not like us. And that seems really banal, right? This is sort of wherever you go, there you are. Um, but it's actually incredibly easy to forget. And I think that it's something that elites in a whole lot of countries did forget over the last 30 years. Um, you know, for the last 30 years ago, we have pushed far and fast towards a system that rewards people like us. And I'm, I'm gonna talk most specifically about the US because that's the system I'm most familiar with, but you see this all over the world. This is a general pattern. We have now tied almost everything in our country, status, enjoyable work, and economic reward, to a single thing, which is education, higher education specifically. Now, this is, great for me. I come from a family that is so good at taking standardized tests that uh, when I got a 1500 on my SATs, which back then put me in the top few percent of the country, Michael James came up and put an arm around me and said, I don't want you to feel bad about it. You can always retest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but here's the thing, right? If, if standardized tests were the metric of achievement, the McArdle family would rule the world. Um, so it's good for me that this has become such a funnel, such a tiny funnel, for so much that our society offers, but it's not so splendid for people who aren't good at sitting still, digesting huge amounts of information, and then quickly processing and, and spitting out an answer. And that's a lot of people too. Um, and this has become so central to our dogma of how the world should work that even suggesting that there might be people who don't have either the aptitude or desire to go to college is viewed as this kind of strange heresy, like you're insulting them. And think about what's buried in that, right? It's the assumption that being good at college is actually synonymous with being a good person. 
and that therefore, if you say someone isn't going to be good at college, they're therefore not a good person and you are insulting them. My grandfather never went to college. He owned a small business. He, my grandparents had, I think, five books in their house that were not the Bible or children's books. And I think like three of them were biographies of one of the Reagans. <laughs> um, my grandfather was the best person I ever knew. He built a successful small business, which I guarantee you personally, um, you know, like I may know, I, I could look up and learn everything about a gas station. I could do everything except run one uh, successfully. He was a pillar of his community. I remember when he was dying, he was 88 years old. And he, we came, went up to visit him. He had, at that point, his uh, cancer had metastasized to his bones. And so we came up for a last Christmas. And I got there expecting to see my grandfather looking really sick. And he blew in the door. He was, wasn't there when I got there. He blew in the door. It, was, it lives in western New York, so it looked like an Eskimo. He's taking off his jacket. And he, he said, oh, you know, I was out ringing the bell for the Salvation Army for two hours, in a, standing outside in a Rochester mall. He said, you know, it really makes you realize we, just, we could all do so much more than we do. And I thought, no, Grandpa, actually, <laughs> I think you've maxed out. Um, so to me, the idea that college makes you a good person, that being good at school makes you a good person, a worthy person, a more valuable person, has always seemed deeply odd, but it does not seem odd to our elite. We've made this the one path to so much success and we've done, and the fact, and because the elite is so good at it, it doesn't even occur to them that there's anything wrong with that system. They can't see it, even though it's actually, I, th I would argue, kind of making them crazy. I do not have children myself. Many of my friends do. They're worried about getting their toddler into college. Um, I, I'm not kidding. So in New York City, there really is like this fierce, where I, I grew up, um, there was a fierce fight to get your kid into the right preschool. Because if you don't get your kid into my preschool, you're done for kindergarten. <laughs> and then, if you don't get your kid into a good kindergarten, how are they ever going to get into a good primary school? And after pray, if they're not in a good primary school, you better just call it off, because they're, they're basically going to be digging ditches for the rest of their lives. Um, this is actually the mentality that people have. People sob, they cry. I, I, I met a guy who's a trader who took his literally not even three-year-old daughter to interview for one of these preschools. I was not there, so I cannot vouch for this story, but he told me with apparent sincerity, um, this is a guy from, from Long Island, who has a Long Island accent, he didn't grow up in this kind of milieu, he's a trade, he's a fancy trader at this point. He said, you know what they asked me? What are her aspirations? <laughs> he was like, she's three, we hope she'll stop eating paste soon. <laughs> This system is insane, and it makes people crazy. And for the young people in the room, many of you are the products of something that I could not have imagined at your age. So you want to know what you have worse than I did? I actually went to a prep school, the sole purpose of which was to get you into an Ivy League school. It did not succeed with everyone, I should point out. But that was the, the original goal. I mean, this was one of the most kind of dedicated environments for getting people into a good college. But back then, what we were put through in terms of the intensity of managing us for college was nothing like what you see in now an average suburban school district. It starts at eight when you choose the sport your child's going to do so that they'll have, maybe hopefully they can get a scholarship. Everyone tells them most of your kids are not gonna get scholarships, I'm sorry. Um, but this intense management of childhood, trying to produce this perfectly packaged product 
for the admissions committees. So what kids don't have now is freedom. I, I grew up wandering around New York at the age of 10, and that was not considered odd. Now it's considered too risky because parents are far too afraid that their children are going to fall out of the system. And if they fall out, you can get into a good preschool, it's over. And unfortunately, they're not even wrong about that. That's the worst part, is that we can't say to those parents, you don't need to worry that your child didn't go to a good school. Our economy is increasingly only rewarding people who get that diploma, maybe an advanced degree, and the pedigree of the school matters. It is the only path to success. Think about what that does to the people who survive the system. It's selecting on people who are risk averse, who are, good at, who are good at catering to authority, who always do what they're told from a very young age. I was not one of those children. Uh, my mother, literally, when I graduated from high school, uh, insisted on photographing me with my high school diploma in case they tried to take it back. Um, <laughs> because there had been some doubt right up to the day before graduation about whether it was forthcoming. Um, but also think about what it does to the people who don't survive that system. And that's a lot of them. And I like to compare like upper middle class kids, they're living kind of a wiffle life, Pedro once called it. They have all of these adults hovering constantly like helicopters to make sure that they get through. Poor kids, the kids who don't have that social capital, it's the opposite. It's not that you cannot be a poor kid and get into college and go through the system and succeed. But if you're a poor kid, you're like Nadia Kamenich, right? You do every single thing right. You have to hit a perfect 10, because if you don't hit that perfect 10, if you make one mistake, and you don't have anyone to push you back in, you're done. It's crazy for them, and it's crazy for the elite. A typical middle-class family in 1950, a typical middle-class neighborhood in 1950, had a lot of different kinds of people in it. Small businessmen like my grandfather, blue-collar workers, reverends, all sorts of people. Those folks lived cheek to jowl with doctors and accountants and lawyers. That same neighborhood now has one kind of person in it, a person with a college degree. It is nowhere more true than in coastal cities, where a lot of the, the students who I see tonight are gonna end up living. New York, LA, San Francisco, Washington. Even when those neighborhoods are mixed. In my neighborhood, actually, if you look at it on paper, it's a model of economic and racial mixing. But if I have to be honest, those different groups might as well be living on opposite sides of the country for all of their social and professional mixing. And that is, again, part of the anxiety that people have about their kids, is that upper middle class kid parents want diversity, but they only want diversity in terms of having different groups of upper middle class kids in, in school with their kids. Um, so what, what's the result of that? The global educated professional class now often has more in common with other people like them in other countries than they do with the people who live in their own countries. Now, there's a lot to like about that. Right? If you look at the EU, if you look at the idea of reducing war, of enhancing trade, of enhancing migration, of mixing cultures, of sharing, there is a lot to like about that. Here's the problem. We still have to live somewhere. There is no global professional stand where we can all hang out, and also who would, who would like do things <laughs> while we were all busy being fabulous and, and writing and, and talking. Uh, those people are our fellow voters, and we no longer know who they are. We no longer know what they want because we don't talk to them anymore. And increasingly, because this is generational, college-educated parents send college their kids to college. And so the separation, my parents were both first-generation college students. But people of my generation, 
are far removed, and the people of the generation behind me have never met anyone. They've never watched their grandfather try to scrub dirt off their hands and see that the dirt has worked in, the oil and the grease has worked in, that his skin is permanently gray. They've never had that experience, which was a normal experience for my mother's generation, a pretty common one in mine, and non-existent in the third generation. So I'm not, by, by the way, trying to cast us back to some halcyon era where everything was better in 1950. There was a lot wrong with America in 1950. There was a lot wrong with the world in 1950. But we had one thing, they had one thing that was better. That is, they did not have a Mandarin class, and we now do. The Mandarin class is, in many ways, very deserving. It's not like the old hereditary aristocracies, right? You have to earn your place in it. You have to make the money. You have to get the college degree. You have to put the work in. Um, but as I said before, there's one thing that they don't know, and that's what it's like to not be a Mandarin. And the problem is that we have now, over the past 35 years, not only separated, but we have made the world over so that it works really well for us and then not so well for other people. I'm talking about college degrees, but I'm also talking about things like globalization and migration. Um, and this is, by the way, not going to be my anti-trade rant. So. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about how we talk about these things. I want to talk about how we talk about immigration, for example. And let me lay out the ways, and again, this is US specific. I apologize to our foreign uh, students. But let me lay out the ways in which we generally defend, as pundits and analysts, defend immigration. Basically, four areas that you tend to see these defenses come. The first is the effect on the immigrants. We look at how much better off they are economically, culturally, security, et cetera, by moving here. Um, second thing is the cultural contribution of the immigrants, although usually this is food. It's actually weird how food, how specific the cultural contribution of immigrants is to the food that they, they cook, which is surely not the only cultural influence that they're bringing to the country, certainly not the main cultural influence that my ancestors, the Irish, brought, um, for which you may humbly thank God every day. Uh, the third thing that you usually see is the services that are dominated by immigrants, right? House cleaning, nail salons, construction, landscaping. And the fourth thing is we, we have a lot of economic statistics debates about the job market and relative changes in, in the wages of low-wage workers and also relative changes in their representation in the economy. So what do you notice about this list? It's really, really, really focused on the upper middle class. Right? What's missing? What does immigration look like to someone who watches a neighborhood they loved where they were third generation changed to a completely different cultural mix? What does it look like if you had a job that you loved and you're now being undercompeted by immigrants and your wages have gone down to keep doing that job. What does it look like if you can't afford someone to come clean your house, watch your kids, do your nails, mow your lawn, or do a home renovation project? What does it look like if you can't afford to eat out or you don't like spicy food and the diner that you used to love has now been replaced by a Thai takeout place? What does it look like, in other words, if you are not a highly mobile professional who regards your neighborhood mostly as a place to sleep and who has ample resources to take up a new profession or to move if things change around you? It's also almost exclusively focused on economic effects. Now, I write about economics for a living, and economics is really super important, and you should all think more about it. Um, but a whole lot of your life isn't economic, right? You don't date for money. You don't choose your friends by how economically rewarding you are. Uh, you don't view your neighbors and your children as potential profit centers, or at least I hope you don't. Um, other people feel the same way. It's true that for upper middle, the upper middle class, most of the inter interaction that they will have with immigrants 
will come either professionally with high-skilled labor or by the services that those immigrants provide. But for people who have more limited economic options and for people who are more invested in a particular small place, who have their economic and their social lives determined mostly by the fate of that place, immigrants have a lot of other big fucks in their lives and we haven't talked about them. Am I arguing the nativist side? No. <laughs> um, what I'm arguing is that we didn't have that argument. Our national discussion of immigration consisted of a bunch of college-educated elites assuring each other that there was no problem and telling people who said there was a problem to shut up. And that is a problem, and that is a recipe for the backlash that we're now getting. And I think this is going to be a really unpopular message in here, and I really debated about whether to leave it, but I really think that this is true. When I try to now talk about these things to my readers, they say, you didn't listen to me 10 years ago. I don't want to listen to you now. That's a problem we have to solve. They don't want to hear about economic statistics. The first thing, and I was at the RNC last week, and I had many criticisms of Donald Trump's speech, but I will tell you what I heard, what I felt in that room. Because the criticism of Donald Trump has always been, you know, his policy solutions are silly. Uh, that's mostly true to the extent that there are policy solutions, which there aren't <laughs> very many of. It's not what those people want from him. What they want from him is someone to say, I take you seriously. I have listened to what you said and I heard it. We didn't say that on some pretty big issues. We need to start because there are more of them than there are of us. And we share a country with them. And if we don't listen, they will use the power of their vote to take our right to speak away. So now, when the liberties that we love are under threat, we need to do better. We need to convince people that liberty and security are not antonyms. We need to convince people that markets can work for them and where they are. We need to convince people that immigration and trade can make them better off and not just become by joining some training programs so they can become more like us. If we want to do that, if we want to be effective ambassadors for liberty, then we need to know what it looks like where they're standing. We need to get out of the bubble that the Mandarin class has created for itself, and especially for its children. So the good news is that when the lamps went out across Europe in 1914, they were eventually relit by people who cradled their little candle while the whole world was burning around them. And the thing about that candle is its truth. And that truth, those truths, they're incredibly powerful because markets do work. Liberty and security are not antonyms. Immigration and trade do make people better off. Individuals who hold on to those truths can eventually prevail even against an evil empire. We have important truths on our side, but as long as we keep talking to each other, no one else is going to hear them. So I'd like to end by saying, you know, I have a lot of hope. I'm looking at all the young people in the room, and you are the future of freedom. You guys, the people at Cato, other libertarians everywhere, did huge work for the last 25 years. And we should stop and appreciate how far we have come since the 1950s on so many issues, from trade to gay marriage. But we also have to stop and say, my generation, we made a few mistakes. <laughs> 
you guys can fix those mistakes. You can do the things we missed. You can talk to the people we missed. And I do think that those lamps are going to be lit again. So with that, I will uh, open it up to questions. I'm just going to start with this table, so they're all going to Mr. Palmer, uh, Mr. Person whose last name I do not know. <laughs> don't even try it. <laughs> um, and do I have another question in this general? Uh, right, and right back there. Be kind. <laughs> well, uh, first, in describing the mandrat, you're also describing all of our liberal and conservative friends. No, I I have, I, let, me, let me actually, can I just stop and say, when I talk about the Mandarin class, I'm not talking about libertarians. I am talking about, like, we are a part of this class. We are not the majority of it. Everyone, everyone in this class has made the same mistake. And when I look at Brexit, when I look at lots of questions all over the world, the refugee crisis, this same mistake has been made in a lot of places by a lot more people who aren't libertarians than people who are. But see, this is our, like, secret strength. Because if we figure this out first, we can get there first. Uh, that's all I would say. So I was, I was, uh, yeah. I was, I was just asking for a clarification on that, and yeah. you did it. But I do have a question about a problem that may be very hard to solve. And I think that you may have read Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, mm -hmm. which is very grim. Yes. And the separation of society, and he focuses on white Americans, but then he says this is happening to the country as a whole. Uh, that not intermingling and so on. And one group, let's say white males in particular with high school degrees, have had a loss of relative social status. So living standards have risen, but their relative status has fallen. The problem is when you say what to do about that, it's a necessary feature of other people rising. If other ethnic groups are rising, if women are increasing in their status, since we're talking about relative status, not absolute, sure. someone has to fall. And the question is, what do you do about that if it has generated an angry backlash? Well, I would say that when you're in a hole, you know, I don't have a great, I, I think a lot of people are wrestling with this and no one's come up with a, a super great answer. But I would say that the first thing you do is stop digging. And I look at, and I, I want to say, like, when I, if I issue an indictment, I'm included in it. This was not, if anyone took this as a speech about how libertarians and nuclear are screwing up, it is absolutely not. Like, I think we have a lot of great ideas, and I want to see us get out there and sell them. This is more about the fact that the elites are so separate, and because we're part of that, we made the same mistake. Um, and I would say this, that the first kind of thing to do is stop digging. And the number of people who thought that the solution to a Trump candidacy was to make brutal fun of his supporters. Because like, boy, those like women's studies graduates with their Twitter hashtags, um, that's not a good strategy. Um, and the kind of social media really in a lot of ways, I think has enhanced this status battle in a way that is really, really, really detrimental. Um, both because it's created more bubbles. It's actually really interesting to me how many people this election cycle, much more than earlier, you always got some of this, but the ubiquity of people saying to me, people 
do X or think X or whatever. And what they really mean is I. <laughs> Um, and me and my Facebook friends. And they actually, like, people are really starting to think they're a silent majority. And the thing I always loved about being a libertarian, right, was you were never in the illusion that you were in the majority. Um, <laughs> it's to say being a libertarian means never having to say you're sorry, right? It's never our fault. No one ever lets us have any power. Um, but uh, that, that function has turned into this kind of, uh, people do like bashing young, white, less educated males for being racist, for being dumb, for sitting, right? Um, and I think that's a problem, which is not to say I'm in any way ratifying, supporting some of the stuff that you've seen come out of, especially the Trump campaign this time around. I want to make that clear. Um, but I think that there is a way to say, hey, look, I think the thing you're saying is unhelpful and let's have more empathy. And then there's a way of saying, like, you're a really stupid racist, and I hate you, and I don't think you should be allowed to vote. And we've come pretty close to the second. And that's, I think, not been a helpful response. I don't have a perfect answer, but um, I also think that, I don't know, family breakdown's a huge problem. Um, it is possible, although not attract, like, I'm certainly not happy about it, but it is possible to me that there were things that we didn't realize we were spending down in terms of social capital, that we were free riding on the family to an extent that we didn't understand until it really started to go away. Um, and that libertarianism starts looking a lot harder when you don't have families there because a single woman with a child is not a viable economic unit. Um, I don't have any answers for that either, unfortunately. I realize I know your name because I've got your book, The Upside of Down, <laughs> and uh, it really speaks to me because I proudly flunked out of college after a year, uh, went through a series of jobs, finally built a successful business, became a New York Times bestseller, and I live in Dallas where people are as school crazy as you talk about. And just this past weekend, we're at a pool party, and my wife and one of her friends, my four-year-old is a great swimmer. She's taking diving lessons, and maybe Agnes will get a college scholarship for diving. I said, stop it right now. <laughs> we're not doing that to her. We'll write a check. Harvard is cheaper than Dallas kindergarten anyway. <laughs> and um, I love what you had to write, because I think it's important to get the message to affluent parents to stop doing that to their kids and let them fail and live life and not have that pressure. I've got a much younger half-sister who is in college now, and she's got a pretty nasty form of anxiety disorder because she went through that in high school and that kind of immense pressure of homework till 2 a.m. and then back up until 6, you know, back up at 6 a.m. So I just want to thank you for that, and I think it's important for more parents to get that. I think it's really great. Like, I went to what was considered a really high-pressure school and that I was at school from 7 a.m. I got on the bus at 7 in the morning and got home around 7 at night. Partly because my school is an hour away from my house. But it's nothing compared to what these kids go through now. Um, you know, I had mandatory athletics and all that, but it wasn't a serious thing where, like, anyone said, Megan McArdle, you need to get a basketball scholarship, which is a very good thing, because I cannot jump uh, or run fast or indeed do any. I'm really good at being tall. But uh, unfortunately, that's not by itself enough qualification for a basketball scholarship, but the pressure that's put on these kids is insane, and yet I'm so sympathetic to the parents, because when they say, like, they're just so terrified, they're so far to fall. Um, we need to build a society where we're not running everything through this single credential, because it's silly. You know, it, college is great. I'm not down, you know, everyone should get the education they want, but don't tell me that you can't be a bookkeeper unless you've gone to college. Don't tell me that you need a 
you know, to go to college, to be an assistant basketball coach. All of these things that didn't used to require de degrees now do, mostly just because someone stuck the requirement on the, on the resume. Um, and that system is insane and it is shutting a lot of good people out. I remember like, where I worked in the 1990s, technology was wild, wild west. Like the best guy I ever worked with had a degree in religious studies from Swarthmore, but we had a guy there who'd been a porter in one of the buildings where my company did work. They hired him to run some cable, he got better, and he was running the network. He was running like major networking projects for huge banks. That could never happen now, because someone in HR would say, where's his college diploma? And you know, he was one of the best guys we had, so I, I think that we really need to rethink this as a society. Um, last. Yeah, thank you for speaking today. Just bouncing off of that point a little bit, um, you, in your response you mentioned that college is a uh, single check, a single confirmation of someone's success. Um, how, especially in a, in a world where university and college success is such a signaling device, let alone the education you get there, how do you push back, either in a policy way or a culture way, against this, this need for this signaling device? What other things can we look towards to, to prove that people could succeed in a, in a career or in a job market, and how do we learn to accept that as a, as a society? Thank you again. So I think this is a huge problem, um, and I think that we, you know, signaling is absolutely, as uh, Brian Kaplan, who's got a forthcoming book on, on, on the education system, says, look, if you had a choice, you could attend classes for four years at Princeton, but not get a diploma, or get the Princeton diploma without going to classes, which would you choose? Everyone knows what they would choose. I mean, I would now, because I don't need another college diploma, I would now like to take classes at Princeton just because it would be fun. But for most people, uh, it's entirely a credential. And what do you do about that? Well, so part of it is that we now have some alternate education thing, uh, programs with like Coursera and so forth. Um, but I think part of it really is to have you know, I say, we always talk about having a national conversation, and it's like our national conversation on race was so great, we've now been having it for 50 years. Um, but there are, those conversations do change things. And the first thing is for people to kind of look around and say, this is crazy, why are we doing it? Um, and we're not th to that point yet. And I think if we get to that point, a lot of people would start saying, this is crazy, why are we doing it? The one problem is that those conversations tend to be led by academics who have sort of a financial interest in the educational system continuing to exist as we know it. And I don't mean that in like a bad way. It's that in the same way that if you start telling me the media is unnecessary, I'm gonna find all sorts of reasons the media is great. And many of those will actually be valid reasons. Um, but it's actually hard to lead that conversation because academics are the people who generate the data. And Brian Kaplan is the only academic I know who thinks that we should have less education. Um, but I think that actually employers are starting to lead this a little bit, Peter Thiel, you know, with his scholarships, but more generally that it's a lot of money and the credential doesn't work that well. Um, I would like to see the first time like Harvard just auctions off, we'll admit them and then you can just take them now. Um, but the serious answer is also that more on the job training, more co-op programs, high schools can do this, two-year colleges can do this. Uh, and they really do work. Like I, I know people who were kind of mediocre engineering students, but their employers loved them. And they got hired and like their bridges seem 
just as good as everyone else's because, in fact, they're good at the job. They're just not that good at passing engineering exams, which are not actually all that much like the job you do. Um, next round of three questions. Okay, uh, in the back, one, uh, was that it? Oh, wait, in the back, two. Oh, and, and in the back, three. Get, get out from in front of the speaker there. Uh, I'm glad you ended on a somewhat optimistic note. Uh, I've been through one, at least one more cycle than you have. Uh, <laughs> the terror of my childhood was uh, the Chinese crossing the Yalu and um, then listening to MacArthur Landing in Incheon. Uh, so we, we did survive, we came back, we made progress, then we fell again and so on. But I'm, I'm gonna suggest, and like your reaction to, start thinking more micro. We think grand policies, and I, I love grand policies. I do macroeconomics, but then I love the tie to the microeconomics. So as you said, where are you and what is the barrier to your happiness? And so my friend Daniel here was, was floating an idea about how to generate at the micro level, reclaiming land within the inner city to create a living environment that is free from interference and so on and so forth. So, I think we need to think, along with the grand policies and moving Congress, is what are the micro interventions we can do, much like we do in business. In business, we solve micro problems, we don't solve macro problems. So, your thought on that? Um, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think that um, if libertarians have a flaw, which I wouldn't necessarily admit, uh, that you know, we are idea people, right? We love first principles get four libertarians in a room trying to reason anything out from first principles, you'll be there for 24 hours at least as we debate what first principles tell us about you know, the proper allocation of like the proper ratio of, of gin to vermouth in a martini. Um, and so the big flaw is that often we don't do more of the micro things. I think about this with charity. It's like if libertarians say, that charity can substitute for the government, we should be doing more demonstration projects on that. Right, we should be showing people, no, like we got this, guys. You can get the government out of this because we figured this out. Um, but that's true in a broad range of things, is more demonstration projects of how small markets can solve problems um, would be great, and I think that that's absolutely something that the, the movement should be thinking about. Um, next question. Who's in the back there? I enjoyed your remarks very much. Um, I'm in no position to defend um, the remarks about athletics. I was a Division One athlete, so <laughs> I can speak about I'm that. I'm so envious because I'm so unathletic. It's not. It's not what you think it is. And, and <laughs> but my degree is in economics, and what I would encourage everyone to think about is that they're both sides to this. So you, you know, I went through all of this, but now we're in a situation where I live in Southern California, where the big issue is everyone gets a trophy. And <laughs> maybe, maybe, but emphatically not just in California. But there's a there's a there's a backlash against that where you have now two generations of children who've grown up playing in little league and soccer where everyone is getting a trophy. What we're seeing now are children who are in getting their first jobs or going for an interview, 
and when they don't get the jobs, mommy and daddy are calling HR asking why. When they don't get the, uh, the, the satisfactory uh, job approval or job review, mommy and daddy are calling to ask why. So the knife cuts on both sides of that. No, I think that that's right, and uh, he referenced my book. I mean, the first chapter of my book is about this phenomenon, and it's, it's not just calling HR. There are, liter there are literally stories about parents who show up for job interviews and grad school interviews with their kids and expect to be there. Um, <laughs> right, I mean, it's you know, fascinating to me because when I was in high school, and I actually had a teacher who treated me really unfairly. I will not in any way bore you with that story, I promise. Um, but the interesting thing is my parents were just like, well, you know, dealing with authority is a skill you're going to need to learn, so you better figure this one out. Um, even though it could have affected my chances of getting into college. And they were like, well, you should suck up to the teacher and get her to change the grade. Um, and the parents don't do that anymore, in part because I think the stakes are so high. You know, when I got into Penn, I think they admitted 20 or 30% of the class. Uh, when Eric Larson went there, he, wrote, he writes these great books, Devil in the White City, um, the, if, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend, although it is grisly. It's about a serial killer in Chicago during the World's Fair. Uh, when he went to Penn, it was, the admissions rate was 50%. It's now under 10%, and Penn has the highest admissions rate of any Ivy except, Cor except Cornell. Um, and so they're not wrong to feel that the number of slots has stayed the same while the number of kids has, has increased, and the wage differential between college graduates and non-college graduates is vastly increased. It's not just the wage differential, though. Like, I have a great job. If it paid less, no one in my, no one in my firm should look. I would still do it. Um, but I didn't say that, boss, uh, if, you, if, if you broadcast this. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's that I have a great job. I'm consuming this fantastic job. I'm also consuming the income I get from it. And both of those are higher than if I were a high school dropout, and that didn't used to be so much the case. And so kid, the, the pressure parents feel is real. The, every, the not letting their kids fail, it's, it's also the physical security. I talked to my friends who have kids. Honestly, like, you would think that the attrition rate in our generation was like 30% easy. We used to play on a jungle gym that was six feet high and had concrete under it. Now I think there was like a mat this thick, right? Now it's like it can only be this high, and the children need to be entirely encased in bubble wrap before they're allowed to. Um, you know, I, I walked to school by myself when I was in fourth grade. And now my friends would never let them do that, right? I, there's a great Nick Gillespie story, actually, about driving along with his wife, and he sees some woman with like a toddler jumping in the front seat and two kids fighting in the back. He says, what kind of parent would let their kids ride with their seat belts? And his wife just looked at him and said, our parents? Um, <laughs> My grandfather used to put all six grandkids in the back of his pickup truck. <laughs> like one of one bad turn could have taken out the entire generation. Um, and I'm not arguing for putting your children in the back of a pickup truck unsecured, by the way. But like the level of total insanity that we have around if you leave your ten-year-old in a car for two minutes, someone will call the cops, which is something that actually happens all the time. That people call the cops as if a 10-year-old is just gonna sit in the car and die <laughs> rather than opening the door. Um, <laughs> so we've totally lost our minds collectively, and part of it is that parents don't wanna see their children suffer, right? Anything that makes your child feel even a little bit bad feels 10 times as bad to you. Um, and so they try increasingly to, to engineer all of those experiences in their lives, but what we, what we now know 
is that those experiences actually, so for example, you would think that if you have a really bad fall, this would make you more afraid of heights. It shows that kids that never fall are the ones who are afraid of heights, right? Because it's the unknown. What is the most scary thing in a movie? It's the thing you can't see. The minute you see an horror movie, you see the scary thing. Like, it's still scary, but it's not nearly as scary as when it was just terrible music playing while you walked around and you didn't know it was coming, right? And we've created lives for which failure is that terrible, scary, scary music for the elite. And that's really unhealthy in, in just a whole lot of ways, and I really think that we just need this drastic rethink from trying to guarantee our kids. Because ultimately, what is college about? It's about a guarantee. And I, like, I went to business school, and business school is the ultimate, and like, I am just paying for a guarantee. I will always have a good job. And boy, when we all got fired in the 2001 recession, you've never heard such a bunch of whiners in your life. <laughs> it's like they had repealed the law of gravity, and no one told us. Um, and you know, but it was actually, like, in some ways, like, being unemployed for two years was certainly not my favorite experience. Uh, I would not urge it on anyone else. But there's also a thing of, like, in some ways, the worst has already happened. And then you're just like, oh, well, that's pretty much it. It doesn't really get worse than being unemployed and living home with your parents when you're 30. It's really exactly <laughs> as lame as it sounds, and I like my parents. Um, and so, like, other career things, it's like, eh, <laughs> whatever. I've already been through it. Um, and we're denying our children that. And we're creating an economy that has less risk-taking and, and less of the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that is always characteristic Amer characterized America, and I, I think it's really dangerous. Uh, sorry, that was a really long-winded shaggy dog answer, which I apologize, but <laughs> and Tom's nodding. Yes, it was. Uh, last question. Um, hello, I'm Adriana, I'm from Ecuador. Hi. So you've talked a lot about what to do here in the US, but Latin America has very special challenges. You know, we don't have a, an elite that worries so much about university. We don't have, um, our main concern is not security, you know? And so what would you say about Latin America? How to spread and be ambassadors of liberty in that part of the world? So I. I Thank you for the question. Uh, it's a, a good rebuke <laughs> to me for being so US-centric. Um, so Latin America, you know, every area is different. Every country is different. Latin America has a lot of challenges in terms of its institutions. And one of the things that, you know, I talked a little bit about the fall of communism. And I think that one of the things that we learned from that experience is that in the 80s, when the Soviet Union was still around, right, it was like, it was, there was markets, and then there was communism. There was markets and there was government. And the idea was, when the Soviet Union fell, was, oh, we'll just take the markets away, the, the government away, and then you'll have markets. And it turned out that was nowhere near that easy. That even just carbon copying a bunch of Western legal and so forth institutions, when they went to Russia, they didn't work. And so Russ Roberts, economist Russ Roberts, tells a, a story about um, going to Russia. He didn't, not him, but a, an economist you know who booked a conference in Russia in the 90s, fairly shortly after communism fell. There is a, I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. <laughs> um, and he showed up, and the guy had just given away his hotel rooms. He said, you can't do that. And the guy said, well, sue me. Right? And that wouldn't happen here. right? You would be shocked if that happened here, because it, first of all, people would sue you. But second of all, <laughs> lawsuits are really expensive. right? You don't sue when the cell phone company rep is mean to you. 
they still tell their customer service reps to be polite to you. Why? Because there's competition and branding. But also because there's norms. People feel bad about doing things they think are wrong. And those norms, underlying capitalism, turned out to be more important than the legal institutions. The norm that you shouldn't do something. And so you see some of this. So in Mexico, for example, one of the things that you've seen as part of the, the migrants have gone back is that they're saying, no, I don't want to bribe a policeman. I shouldn't have to. I live in America where I don't have to do that and I don't want it here and things are slowly changing. And so similarly, I talked, you know, because corruption is a problem, but also just a, a lack of trust outside of the family. Because when you live in a society where the government isn't trustworthy, who do you fall back on? You fall back on your family because in, and your close friends. So it's what Russia was like. It's what any society that doesn't provide good government institutions develops, and then it's hard to break out of. We forget how hard trusting strangers is. Right? I get on the internet, and I just send $100 to some total stranger across the country, and I'm like, yeah, he'll send me stuff, and he does. Um, so even though like half the time I will probably forget I've ordered those books or whatever before they come, and so if he didn't send them, there's like a 1% chance he could just keep the $100, but I still do it, and he still sends them every time. Um, how do you import that? So one way is migration, which is one of the reasons migration is great, among many others. Um, but also, so I actually talked to uh, the head of Transparency International in Latin America about this. And he said, actually, what's been really good is Chile. Because people used to say, oh, North Americanos, we can't do that, right? And then Chile did it. And they were like, oh, I guess maybe we could. Maybe it's not some special North American thing. Maybe anyone could do this. Um, and so what you've seen is starting to see competition. So for example, uh, he's seen this all over the world, but specifically in Latin America. He said you know, that I had a, a big Mexican city mayor come and say, I want to be one of the top 10 uh, cities on your transparency list, on your lack of corruption list. And it worked. So these things can work. It's slow. But the first thing that you have to do is say, it doesn't have to be this way, and convince other people that it doesn't have to be that way. That in itself, what's amazing about that is just how powerful that is. So good night. Thank you.